0: Welcome to the show, I'm so glad you're here. And today I'm gonna be taking on, in the words of the host of this show, the best atheist content creators here on YouTube, as they challenge me with questions no Christian can answer. Now, I should be fair, they didn't challenge me directly, they challenged Christians, and they're claiming that Christians cannot answer these questions. 66 books, filled with thousands of pages,
1: hundreds of thousands of words, but not one of which says that rape
0: is morally wrong. But if the man encounters the engaged woman in the open country and he seizes and rapes her, only the man who raped her must die. Do nothing to the young woman because she is not guilty of an offense deserving death. So I'm gonna try to answer all these questions and see how we do. Actually, I listened through this video one time, and it was this morning. And frankly, I don't remember hearing anything that I had any difficulty answering. Uh, I found, I I remember hearing a couple of things where I thought, there's a couple of ways that might be. I've got my personal opinion about it. Uh, But that's that's how it is in any field. But I'm going to answer these as straightforwardly as I can. And let's see how much of a problem they pose for Christianity. Let's go. If God is going to be positive for an explanation for human existence, then by what mechanisms...
2: Meaning, by what activities and interactions that are organized in such a way that produced
0: humans did God use? And by what means could we discover those mechanisms? Okay, as genetically modified skeptic fuzzes into the screen here. Um, So I think that was Steve somebody. And the question is... Um, what? How did God set it up such that the universe resulted in human beings? Well, this is a great teachable moment. People who have listened to my channel before, know that I believe that the, uh, the theistic evolution, the notion that um, God utilized evolution to bring about human beings, is false. But I'm open on that. And if I found out that it were the case, it wouldn't mean that Christianity. It wouldn't cause any trouble for my Christianity because evolution being uh, true wouldn't mean that uh, God doesn't exist or that Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. Right, so uh, there's just simply not a problem there. So, if that ends up being the case, then the way that it all happened is exactly as Steve uh, probably himself thinks that it happened. The only difference is that God set it up that way, which has greater explanatory value for how things evolved in the time frame that it's taken for them to evol- evolve. And it explains the fossil record and explains everything really, really well. Where we have these jumps uh, in species that seem like they should have taken a lot more time and there should be a lot more. Uh, transitional species than we currently have in the fossil record so uh, but uh, theistic evolution if it's true and it answers your question directly me personally I think that uh, the, the, the way that God did it was that he created man and woman boom there you go now if you if you're asking well how, how do we what is the process by which he did that well he breathed life into Adam and he created uh, woman from Adam so uh, that's what the Bible teaches uh, how but if the question is a little bit deeper and it's something like okay, well, then how is it the case? Uh, how would we ever know that a god was involved well that was where we would just kick it over to something like a teleological argument that is more commonly known as a design argument and we would say something like the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity chance or intelligent design it's not due to physical necessity Um, it's not due to chance therefore it's due to intelligent design I've got a video on my website in the topical videos playlist that goes through a uh, explanation of that design sort of idea and argument so um, that's how you would know if, if if there is evidence of design, you would know that there's a creator. How how did he do it? Uh, Well, my personal view is that he spoke the universe into existence and he breathed life into Adam, created woman from Adam. But if it is the case that the way he did it was he utilized evolution and I find that out someday, uh, fine. And in that case, it would be the same way you probably already think it happened. So there you go. Not too tough so far, let's see what's next. Among even the most fundamentalist of Christians, there are always people who interpret some
2: part of the Bible metaphorically. Like in the book of Job, they talk about the four corners of the earth, even fundamentalist Christians, for the most part, interpret that as metaphorical because we know there are no four corners of the earth. So when we find something in the Bible that doesn't necessarily reflect fact when interpreted literally, how can we definitively tell that that was intended to be interpreted metaphorically and not literally and is actually a falsehood?
0: Okay, well, it wouldn't be a falsehood if, if the correct interpretation is that it should be metaphorically and not literally. It would only be a falsehood if the uh, person writing it intended for you to take it literally and it just wasn't true. Um, If if he didn't mean it literally, he meant it metaphorically and you're forcing him into a literalistic interpretation, that's not a falsehood, that's just you're wrong about the genre. So the falsehood is completely off the table right from the jump. So let's uh, look at this a little more deeply. I think this is a great example because people will sometimes say, is the Bible a book of history or is it a book of science? Is it, should it be taken literally or should it be taken figuratively? Um, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 books, and of those 66 books, there are multiple genres. You've got Greco-Roman biography, probably. You've got narrat- narrative material. You've got books of poetry. You've got apocalyptic literature. You've got all kinds of literature in the Bible, and so determining how a particular author is trying to communicate something will involve you doing a good hermeneutics and good exegesis of a passage to find out, okay, how did he likely mean this? And by the way, this is not unique to the Bible. We do this with every piece of literature that we ever encounter. Even if you pick up a a book of poetry in the local bookstore that was written last month, you recognize this is a book of poetry. That's a particular genre. I know that metaphor is uh, very rich in that genre. And so I'm going to keep that in mind as I read through this. And there's simply not a problem. Now, if you wanted to go through and say, okay, if I took this literally, then it's not true. Therefore, it's a falsehood and I should be able to tell that. Nobody would do that with anything else. It's just when you're talking about the Bible and people wanna try to do do whatever they can to find a way to poke a hole in the truth of the Bible. So uh, 66 books, you got multiple genres. Uh, here's here's a fun little fact. Nobody takes everything in the Bible literally. I don't care if you encounter the most staunch fundamentalist you've ever met and they tell you that they do take everything in the Bible literally. They don't. You'll run into specific tribes of uh, dispensationalists that will say they take a literal reading of Revelation. They don't. They read certain things in Revelation literally. You'll run into some partial preterists, people that have a different uh, understanding of Revelation other than the futurist perspective, and for the most part, and they, will, uh, they don't take everything in the book of Revelation literally, and and they're happy to tell you that, um, that these are symbols and and metaphors. Uh, The question will become which things are symbols and which things are metaphors. So the question of how we definitively show that a particular thing is a metaphor or literal, well, that's that's in the very robust field of uh, biblical scholarship, New Testament and Old Testament scholarship, and it's a fascinating field of study. Uh, And there are some passages that we debate over and we struggle with. But for the most part, you can get started by simply considering the genre and considering the person writing the book, as best you can tell, at least the cultural setting of that person, the people to whom he was writing, and the purpose for which he was writing. And if you do that, then a lot of these things that you're struggling over, it becomes a lot simpler. And for the most part, most people can understand that most of those things are either to be taken metaphorically, or literally. There are places where we get stuck, but like I said, that's that's where we incorporate scholarship, which you're going to have to do with any book that's that old and that far removed from our socio-cultural context. Um, I would recommend uh, with the New Testament for sure, uh, well, with the Old and the New Testament, the IVP, was, is that the right thing? The, background, the historical backgrounds uh, Bible study, anyway, the New Testament one is keener, and it's fantastic. And it goes through and, and takes into account the socio-cultural milieu of the time. Also, uh, David de Silva's, de Silva's honor, kinship, patronage, and purity, or some variation of those words. Fantastic. A lot of the words that you think are drenched in religious uh, meaning uh, were just words at the time. And when you understand how people understood things uh, in the in those days, what certain words meant, and how people thought about things back then, uh, that even further enriches your understanding of the text. So you have to actually do some work. You have to read some journal articles. You have to read some books. You have to educate yourself in this realm. And that's just the nature with anything that's an ancient piece of literature. You've got to put yourself in the mind of the person uh, speaking the message and receiving the message. However, much, much more simply, uh, most people can just understand what the genre is. A good Bible will tell you what the genre is in an introduction to that book and then just read it with that understanding it's not that difficult. Again, if you go into a local bookstore and you see a, a, a book of poetry, you understand that genre. Uh, a comic book, you understand that genre. Uh, historical fiction, you understand that, that genre. And so you keep those in mind as you read them, and there's not usually too much of a problem. For the most part, that's the case with the Bible. But again, there are some things we have to go a bit deeper. But that's how you do that, uh, genetically modified skeptic.
3: What are your reasons for not being a Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist or follower of one of the many other non-Christian faiths? Is it because you've devoted enormous time and energy to systematically investigating and debunking all these other religions? If you haven't done this, how can you in all honesty claim that your religion is superior? And if you're only a Christian because you happen to have been born into a Christian family, or you were raised in a culture or society where Christianity is commonplace, what about all the other people who by a twist of fate Have been raised believing one of the many other religions that God has allowed to proliferate.
0: Kyle? Okay, uh, before we go on to, I think this is Godless Cranium, uh, let's go through that real quickly. Um, First of all, why would I think that, why would I be a Christian exclusivist is the terminology that you would use. Why do I think that Christianity is true and these other religions are false? Well, first of all, I don't, he used the word superior. That's probably the right word because false, uh, I wouldn't say that all other religions are false. I would say that most of the religions have some truths in them. So all the other religions besides Christianity are mostly false, right? He's only mostly dead. They're mostly false. They all hit on some truths, and that's relevant to, to point out, I think. But the reason I'm a Christian exclusivist is because um, I believe that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe that that grants merit to the central and most, uh, the biggest miracle claim in the Gospels, which means I have some good reason to trust at least some of the things that are in the Gospels. Of course, I I'm I, I believe in biblical authority, but but trying to look at it from an evidential perspective, th- that gives me a good reason to believe that some of the, 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 some of the claims in the Gospels are true and at least the biggest miracle claim is true, which means I have less of a reason to doubt some of the other claims. These seem like genuinely reliable. Uh, or generally reliable sources. So I believe what Jesus says. So if the resurrection really happened and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, and he says other things that we could spend another whole video going through that would uh, contradict the primary teachings of other religions, well, then those religions are false. Uh, He mentioned a couple. I think Islam was one of them. So, for example, in Islam, it says uh, about Jesus, he did not die, they did not crucify him. Well, the Bible says that he did die, and they did crucify him. It's a major contradiction at a central point in the Christian message. So if Christianity is true, that... uh that's all I really need to know. However, have I gone through and investigated the other world religions? I have actually. In fact, I, I teach a class at the master's and doctoral level here at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, TrinitySem.edu. That's Trinity S E on world religions, and we go through the major religions of uh, uh, of the world today. Uh, in fact, we have a class on cults in which we go through some of the Christian cults and look at some of the lesser known religions. So I think I have actually taken time to go through some of these world religions and find the things that are wrong with them. And um, I have other. videos videos on each of those things on this channel, so you can go find, uh, check out what I have to say about uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, uh, 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 Sikhism, uh, let's see what else, Judaism, Sans Christianity. You can take a look at all those things and see what you think about it, um, and even find out what I think about some weird cults like Raelianism and uh, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Um, So uh, have fun with that, I've checked it out and if the central claims of Christianity are true and Christianity is an exclusivist religion, that's how I know that Christianity is superior. Now that doesn't mean that I'm superior. I am one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Um, when I when I say that Christianity is the only or the the true the supreme religion I guess the exclusive truth the only way to salvation what I'm saying is not look how awesome I am because I'm a Christian I'm saying you know, I'm pointing to Jesus and I'm saying look how awesome he is because I I can't I couldn't have shown you and given you the truth he's showing it to you he's giving it to you so uh, that's how I answer that question now there was another one he actually rolled up three or four questions into one there's another question about what happens to people from other religions uh, I'm going to simplify this uh, and, Actually, I'm making it more difficult for myself. This is a question that is known in the theological circles as the fate of the unevangelized. Well, what happens to people that never hear the gospel, or what happens to people that are in other religions? Uh, there are a number of ways of going about answering that question. Uh, one way is to say that God will judge them based on the uh, light that they had. The Bible teaches in places like Romans chapter one, verse twenty, that the invisible things of God, His eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What that means is you should be able to look at the creation around you and know some things about the one true God. So everyone that lives on planet Earth has some limited light to understand something about one creator God so that if they don't believe in at least one creator God, they don't have an excuse for that. We'll get to that more specifically when we look at the video from Paul Ogia and Shana Q just a little while down the road. Uh, But uh, so so everyone has that. So some people say, like William Lane Craig and uh, has suggested this and Billy Graham when he was alive, that perhaps God judges people based on that. Because he's a just God, he just judges them on the basis of the light that they had. Other people would say that perhaps at the point of death that they're given an opportunity. Uh, I don't I don't think that one's true at all, but um, based on what I think I see in scripture. Uh, the, the thing that I think probably has the most weight is the fact uh, that in the Bible, we have in Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius. Here was a man who was open to learning more about the one true God, and God sent a messenger in Peter. Uh, We see things like that actually happening. It seems that God is appearing to people in the Muslim world who have no access to the true message about Jesus, and Jesus is actually appearing in dreams and visions, serving as the evangelist. If that sounds wild to you, check out the paper given by Adam Harwood at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary at their annual Apologetics Defend conference a few years ago. You can find it on his website. You can Google it and find it. Uh, Pretty interesting stuff. We've actually had students at Trinity who've talked about that. They've come over here from uh, certain African countries and told us that it's actually happened to them or it's happened to people that they know. I mean, there's a lot. There are so many testimonies about this. It's getting ridiculous to try and dismiss it in the sort of uh, you know, glib way that some people dismiss these things. Uh, so, so I think it's reasonable uh, to think that that maybe if someone is genuinely open and seeking after God, that God will make a way for them to find the truth. Um, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I have friends that are involved in that, and uh, my understanding is that it's often the case that when we run into people in the 10:40 window, that's the people that have never received the gospel, that uh, they will find out that they were just praying that God would reveal Himself in some way to them. So, I, I think that's probably the way that. It, most often happens. Uh, God can do that if he wants to. So uh, that's, that's my answer. The Christians have an area of flexibility here with this answer, but that's how I answer that. So I think that takes care of everything that he brought up. Let's move on to Godless Cranium.
3: Kyle asked me to come up with a question for Christians. I had a really hard time choosing just one. I mean, much of the Bible makes no sense at all, but I wanted to choose a question that really gets to the heart of the religion and one that would apply to most, if not all Christians no matter their denomination. And so I decided to go with the supposed resurrection of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. and the reason why he had to die in the first place. Here's my question. Why would an omnipotent, all-powerful God need a human sacrifice in order to forgive people their sins? If this being is truly capable of doing anything, has unlimited power and resources, and is all-loving, why would it require a brutal torture and killing? Why would it need a blood sacrifice and not just simply forgive people their sins? especially if it knew their motivations and could judge people according to their intentions. This question has always baffled me, even when I was a Christian. Anyhow, thanks for inviting me to take part in this video, Kyle.
0: All right. So uh, this is actually a pretty good question. I think most Christians think about this and wonder about this at some point in their Christian existence. Um, and it's certainly obviously a thing that atheists and skeptics would wonder about, but I think there's a pretty good answer. He says there that God can conceivably do anything. Well, uh, that is colloquially true, but we need to look under the hood and see what else is going on there. Um, many atheists are fair enough, and I'm sure Godless Cranium would if he if I talked to him about this at any length, that uh, it's reasonable to say, and of course, classical Christianity has always that God is capable of doing anything that does not involve a logical contradiction, right? God can't make square circles. God can't make buried bachelors. It's not because there's a thing here, a square circle, that God just can't do. Um, instead, what it is is uh, that's not a thing at all. It's not that there's something God can't do. It's just that's not a thing. That's nonsense, right? Uh, in the same way, God, can't, uh, God, is a, God has certain characteristics or attributes. God is uh, perfectly just. God is all-loving. In fact, I think a lot of the Old Testament stuff that I'm surprised isn't getting brought up here uh, that seems pretty graphic or pretty violent or whatever is answered in the same way. If you plug in God's love and God's justice, not one or the other, but God's love and God's justice, then what you get is, if God's not going to have a contradiction in his nature and if he's not going to act in contradiction to his goodness, his ultimate goodness, then certain things have to happen that we may not like and that may even seem a little weird to us, for instance, If it were the case that we captured Adolf Hitler um, on the heels of the Holocaust, what should we do with such a man? We should enact justice, right? And we could debate about what exactly should be done. Should he be sent to Guantanamo? Should he be put in prison for the rest of his life? Should he be turned over to uh, some other country? Should he receive capital punishment? We could have a debate about that, but the point is something should happen. We should not just give him a hug, pat him on the back, and say, now, now, don't ever do that again, but we're going to forgive you. Of course not. That would actually not be good, right? If, if there's a standard of ultimate goodness, that certainly wouldn't be it. This man should receive just—there uh, should be justice done to him, and the Jews should receive justice in the other direction. They should receive the justice of knowing that uh, evil was dealt with in that way and that there was a penalty for what this man horribly, horribly did. Anything less than that would be unjust, and a person who allowed something unjust to that degree to happen or any degree to happen is less good. But <laughs> okay? Man did something that was unjust. In fact, all men do things that are unjust. And as a result, a perfectly just God has to bring about a penalty for that. Uh, The problem is that he's also, or the the good news is, he's also a God of love. And if he's a God of love and a God of justice, if he's not going to be contradictory within himself, then that means that he has to punish this justly. He has to bring justice. But as a loving God, he he still wants to make a way where people can experience um, his presence for all eternity. And, And and live with him and have a people to himself if anyone wants to be a part of that people. And so uh, the the way that that, that that is accomplished is that penalty uh, is— taken care of in the person, Jesus. Now, I love this because if it's an everlasting penalty, that, and this goes for annihilationist Christians too, who believe that, um, that people will ultimately just die and there won't be eternal conscious suffering. They still believe that it's an everlasting penalty and that you'll be dead everlastingly. So um, how do we answer this question? Well, uh, you committed an everlasting sin. The just penalty is an everlasting punishment. So the wonderful thing is that an everlasting person came and took the everlasting punishment on your behalf, so that you wouldn't have to pay it. And as a result, you get to experience the presence of God forever and God's able to have a people to himself. His justice is satisfied and also his love. Why couldn't he just ignore it and be like, hey, it's fine, I'm just gonna forgive everybody because that would involve a contradiction in God's nature and it would be something like uh, saying to Adolf Hitler, hey, it's fine, just don't ever do it again. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm not Adolf Hitler and I would never do anything like Adolf Hitler. This is where we need to have a proper understanding of the holiness of God and how absolutely maximal it is that the things that we don't think are that bad are that bad in uh, contrast and comparison to this holy God. Now, your mileage may vary on whether you think that makes sense uh, or whether you like that, but it totally makes sense of the details and the data that we have. So um, that's how I would answer that question. Let's move on.
2: Cheers. A variety of religions from ancient Greek beliefs to Native American beliefs, both past and current, account for gods that have relationships with their believers and with their servants. Why do you feel like the relationship that you claim to have with Jesus Christ is somehow special or unique, and somehow invalidates how all other believers feel about their gods and their connections with their gods?
0: Hello, everyone. Okay, so uh, first of all, I would go back to the answer I gave just a while ago to somebody else and say the reason that I believe that my relationship with uh, Jesus is real and uh, should be trusted, and those that that are having some sort of a relationship that's not with Jesus is is not a relationship with the one true God like mine is. It's so the only way I can make sense of that question, is because I think that Christianity is true. I think that God exists and there's incredible evidence for that that is absolutely I think as close to impenetrable as can be done to the point that I'll say it again if you don't believe in God I I don't know what's going on if you've heard the arguments for God's existence the theistic arguments like the contingency arguments uh, the Kalam cosmological argument the design arguments uh, the moral arguments and you've heard a good case for the resurrection um, Christianity is a reasonable faith now um, I think that uh, God's existence I, I don't understand how someone doesn't believe in God I mean I understand I've heard what everybody says but I, I just I it's it, it blows my mind that people don't there's anyone who doesn't believe in one Creator God, but hey, if that's you out there, I have sympathies because there are a lot of voices that are going your way. That the, the cultural suggestions are out there, and that that can happen. So, but but to my mind, I have to be blunt about it. I, I just it, there's absolutely no reason for anyone to disbelieve in God. Um, now. Uh, the resurrection, I, I, I think there's a really good case for the resurrection. So the bottom line is, I think that there's good reason to believe that the Christian message is true based on evidence. I don't believe there's good reason to believe that these other religions' uh, ultimate central claims are true. Now, that doesn't mean that other people in other religions are not having a meaningful experience. Um that could be chalked up to psychology that could be chalked up to um some sort of a um uh an effect that they have created within themselves as they think about this god and and they imagine it to be real and 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 that happens over a long period of time especially especially with indoctrination as a kid um all those kind of things which that happens within christianity too indoctrination as a kid it's just that you're being indoctrinated to something that's true because there's actual good evidence for it that you can find out about uh but i I know this sounds blunt but i'm I'm trying to do this for the sake of brevity because there's a lot to get through here uh, But The uh Secondly, I would say it's possible that people in other religions are actually experiencing something supernatural. When people claim to be experiencing something supernatural, I don't say they're not experiencing something supernatural. When Mormons claim to have the burning in the bosom that tells them that they're having a real experience, um, I don't. Is, how do you? Who are you to tell me that my experience wasn't real? I'm not telling you that your experience wasn't real. I'm, I'm not questioning that for a second. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe you've worked that up in your own mind. Maybe it's real. But if it's real, what I want to know is what is the content of that experience because Christians don't just believe that God exists. Christians also believe uh, in other supernatural beings like demonic entities out there. And are they working to deceive people? On Christian theology, they certainly are. So I wouldn't question that other people are having experiences. If that sounds condescending, I'm sorry. I'm saying this because I care about people and I love them and I don't want them to go to hell. I want them to have an experience of bliss in heaven for all eternity with God and have a father and have a family and have a relationship. And the way to do that is through the one evidential worldview, the most evidential worldview I think that we have, and that is... Uh, Christian theism. Let's keep trucking.
2: Everyone, in the Old Testament, God didn't like all the unrighteous people on earth. So why did God choose to get rid of all of them with a global flood? Presumably, he could have made them painlessly vanish with a silent snap of his immaterial fingers. And why, after flooding the whole earth, did God decide to hide all evidence of his act?
0: Okay, the idea that he hid all evidence of his act is merely an assertion. There are all kinds of people that point to the fact that in every culture, just about, or at least many cultures, there are discussions of this worldwide flood, this ancient flood. Uh, There are people that believe in a local flood who are Christians, and they think they have really good reasons to believe that. Some of my very close friends who are conservative evangelicals believe in a local flood. Uh, But uh, this idea that there's no evidence, that's just uh, assertion. And as Christopher Hitchens often said, that which can be asserted without evidence uh, can be dismissed without evidence. So there you go. Um, Why did God, this goes back to the Pine Creek thing, right? This is the thing about the poof or drown. Why would God drown people when he could just poof them out of existence? Well, uh, first of all, this was a judgment. It wasn't meant to be pleasant. But if you're asking me what would I have done, as Pine Creek often asks people, I probably would have poofed them out of existence. Are there things that that God does as judgments that I don't like? Yeah, there are. Uh, There you go. That doesn't mean it's not true. The question is not what do we like the question is not why and we're gonna get to this more with another video in just a moment but the question is not why would you want to believe something like that the question is is this true or not? That's what we're ultimately getting at. And if the follow-up question would be something like, well, but it sounds like you're saying that you have a more merciful tone or a, uh, you're a more moral being than your God is. Uh, no, I'm giving you the opini- opinions of someone who lives in Southwest Indiana. God is the uh, creator of the cosmos. He sees things and understands things in a way that I couldn't imagine. So uh, on things like that, I trust that he's got good reasons <laughs> for doing it the way that he did. And pretty much he does tell us it's a judgment. Now, were there children and people who hadn't gotten to a point of really making uh, moral decisions in a complicated way? Yeah, there are. And that's where I say, I don't know. But I'm not offering the flood as an evidence for the truth of Christianity. I'm responding to you. I think Christianity is true based on incredible evidence that I just talked about or referenced at least a moment ago. When it comes to things like this, uh, I know that God has his reasons for that. He sees things in a way that some guy in southwest Indiana doesn't. So there you have it. Why is it that the believers in every religion in history were wrong about their
2: respective religion, despite having the same amount of conviction and evidence as you do for Christianity? It seems to me that you're already an atheist when it comes to all other religions in history, but somehow the one you happen to be born into is the one correct one.
0: If God... Oh, my goodness. Uh, this brings back to my mind uh, the uh, a video I just recently saw from What Do You Meme, where he, he covered this thing of, well, you're an atheist with respect to every other god except for this one that you believe in, Yahweh, but you're an atheist with respect to all the other gods. And it's like, uh, well, hey, we're all murderers. If you're in the presence of a murderer and, and you murdered somebody, well, well, you know, we're all murderers. I've just murdered one more person than you have, right? I mean, that, that doesn't work. That logic just doesn't work. Um, if I believe in a god, it doesn't matter how many gods I reject. If I believe in one God, I believe in God. If you don't believe in God, then you don't believe in God. Um, uh, You know, this is, this is absurd. This logic just doesn't work. And it's bizarre to me that it has made it this far um, through, through the uh, atheist channels. I mean, that's like a, honestly, to my atheist friends out here there, I love many of you. I I really like you, but that's like such an atheist meme and such an atheist. I have no idea who that guy is is that was that that wasn't vice rhino that was somebody else i don't know who he is i'm sure he's a lovely guy but the fact is that is such a meme that it's almost like when a creationist says something like if evolution is true why are there still monkeys that haven't turned into people yet i mean that's about where it's at um to be direct about it i'm sorry I'm, i'm not trying to be snarky i'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible um but uh, what, what was the actual? Oh, why haven't I? Why haven't I uh, embraced? Or why are all the other religions? Following? We already covered this question we already covered this question because uh, Christianity is an exclusive religion and it's evidentially, uh, it's got really good evidence for it, uh, far greater than any other religion. It's weird to me that he says they have the same confidence level and the same evidence as your religion. Uh, surely you don't believe that all the religions have the equal same amount of evidence. Surely you uh, wouldn't say something as, uh, as silly as that. Surely you understand that some religions are more, uh, are more possibly true or more likely to be true than others. And have more evidence for them than others. Uh, maybe it depends on how you uh, define evidence. I don't know. But that seems silly to me. Now, do they have this confidence that I have? Yeah, there are people that have as much confidence in their religion as as I do in mine, uh, it's sad for them because I I think they need to become Christians and have their confidence in the right religion. And if they would look at the greater amount of evidence for Christianity than there is for that religion, whatever that religion is, they would be Christians and I encourage them to do that. All right, let's keep trucking. God is all powerful and all loving. Why does he require blood
2: in order to grant forgiveness? Old Testament or new, something had to die before he could forgive anyone. Human beings can forgive each other without there being a death first. Why can't
0: God? Okay, uh, why is blood necessary? Well, you understand that blood is synonymous with this, the death of something, the sacrifice of something. Ideally, something that's in, of incredible value to you. It's if you really, uh, if you really mean this, then you would be willing to sacrifice something that is incredibly valuable to you. So, go back to the original Passover. Go back to Egypt, and the reason that they had to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost um, was because it was an evidence that they were willing to sacrifice something that was incredibly valuable to them uh in faith, in, in evidence, uh, in demonstration of trust and faith in the one true God. Um, And by doing that, you're identifying with him. Jesus took that incredible image of the Passover and applied it to himself. And that is the new covenant, right? And and it's his blood that shed. He is the perfect uh, lamb that was slain so that the the sacrificial system uh, can end in the sense of animal sacrifice and ritual ceremonial sacrifice of that sort. And now we place our trust in the ultimate sacrifice and we live each day a living sacrifice. We live our lives in testimony to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's seems like too much preaching for you. Let me back up and say, you remember a while ago when we talked about God's love and God's justice? Justice had to be done. Justice had to be paid. And in the Old Testament, the law was a teacher in this sense. God was teaching people, uh, the, the importance of a penalty, uh, some kind of justice has to be done, but it was pointing toward a future sacrifice when God would be able to forgive the sins of the world on the basis of justice ultimately being ultimately done in the person of Jesus on our behalf. So uh, a blood sacrifice—it's not like there's—it's not like there's, it's not like there's this, the blood of some lamb has has some goo in it that suddenly is able to absolve you of your sins. That would be a horrible caricature. What it is to say is that you sacrifice something of value, and ultimately that's the point to the sacrifice that Jesus made on all of our behalfs, because justice had to be paid. God is a God of justice, he's also a God of love. And it wouldn't be just for us to pat uh, uh, Adolf Hitler on the back and let him go and say, don't do it again. Some justice would have to be done. And with our sin, justice had to be done. The sin of mankind, justice had to be done. And Jesus, uh, God loved us enough that he sent his son to take that uh, penalty on our behalf. So there you go.
2: If you've never been to the ends of the earth, if you've never been to every planet, if you've never been to the corners of the universe, how do you know other gods don't exist?
0: Okay, that um, that's a really interesting one. Uh, I often say it in almost precisely that way. How do you know that there's no married bachelors anywhere in the physical universe? Do you know that? Well thoughtful people who are aware of this law of non-contradiction would know that if you're by virtue of being married you're not a bachelor and by virtue of being a bachelor you're not married so how do i know that there are no married bachelors anywhere in the universe well because they have um Uh, because it's a contradictory concept. I don't have to to build a spaceship and travel to the furthest reaches of the universe to determine, nope, I haven't found any square circles. I haven't found any married bachelors. They're just not here. No, I know that there aren't any married bachelors and no square circles because the very idea is incoherent. And as far as I can tell, the other religions that we have are incoherent. And sometimes the God that they're, most of the time, the God that they're purporting or the gods that they're purporting also are ha, have contradictions in their nature. So that's one way. Secondly, I have good evidence that the God of Christianity is the one true God, and since Christianity is an exclusivist religion, that rules out all the other gods. So that's a pretty straightforward answer to that question.
1: There are thousands of other religions out there, many of which have millions of followers. So according to your logic and theirs, anyone who is a blasphemer to your particular deity is going to be condemned, whether it is to go to hell or to be reincarnated as a less intelligent animal. If your god is true, why is it that he would even allow the minds of humans to be so easily deceived into believing other religions? He essentially would have created brains that can be fooled, and ultimately will send these people down to hell. In addition, how do you know you're not one of the people who have been fooled? Truth.
0: Okay. Um, well, here's the thing. So this goes back a little bit to the question of the fate of the unevangelized that was discussed earlier, where how does God judge those that have never heard the gospel and all that sort of thing. Um, so go back and listen again to those answers to find out how I would deal with the question of those who've never heard the gospel or people in other religions. Uh, beyond that, I would say why did the, the more pertinent question, which is a good one, which is, By the way, a lot of these questions are good questions. The fact that I'm moving through this more quickly and thus might sound a little bit more curt or more snarky or unkind, uh, people that know me know that that's not what I'm about. I'm just trying to get through this in a succinct way because my videos can get pretty long and right now we're at 37 minutes, so, you know, Um, but... Uh, this question of why wouldn't God create our brains in such a way that we could obviously see the truth and uh, and all that. Okay, first of all, I have every reason to believe that our brains are not currently as God originally intended them or uh, the historical Adam's brain probably was. Uh, the, the universe has fallen and we've experienced the ramifications of our sin and um, epigenetics and all kinds of other things and disease and uh, d- all kinds of things have gotten into the genetic code to uh, make our brains probably less... Um, efficient and probably uh, just not functioning the way that they probably could uh, at optimum level. So um, I think that the fallen universe in which we live is one straightforward answer to that question. Another thing that I would say uh, about this is I'm going to sound a little bit like a presuppositionalist apologist here, and I'm not saying that atheists are lying, okay? But I do think that you currently have a brain that is sufficiently sophisticated to look around you, as I quoted from Romans 120 a while ago. Uh, his uh, The invisible things of God His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. I think people are without excuse for not seeing that there's one true God. I think that you can and I know that, how that sounds to you, but I'm sorry. I have to say it. I believe it. I think you can look around you at the creation and see that there's a designer. Uh, However you think we got these human bodies, as Steve at the top of this video was pointing out, um, my hands were clearly made to grab things. Uh, My mouth was clearly made to eat and to breathe and to talk. And when it comes to eating and breathing and talking, I am a satisfied customer. Those are some of my favorite things to do. The fact is, it's all just a little too suspicious. And even if you look outside of biological life, the fact that in the words of Stephen Hawking, the universe had had to be fine-tuned to within a hair's breadth or else the universe would have collapsed in on itself in a hot fire. Ball. everything had to be so fine-tuned and the, the evidence from the beginning of the universe I mean these are all things you can observe and understand without having to get a PhD okay and for those that would say yeah but if you got a PhD you'd see that evolution answers all of that evolution doesn't answer all of that the, the question of a first cause is at base a philosophical question and the science actually helps us out on that go listen to the videos I've done on the Kalam Cosmological Argument to get more on that um, so there's a lot that we can say about this But ultimately, I do think you have a brain that's capable of understanding the truth about one true God. And I think that would open the door to a meaningful discussion and investigation of the truth of these different, uh, of an examination of these different world religions. And we could, I think, arrive at Christianity. So I do think your brain is capable of that. And my prayer is that in watching videos like this and videos that are much better than this one by uh, better apologists uh, and ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, I hope that you'll just see the truth and use that brain that you've got in your head to get to this point you <laughs> That's not me criticizing you. I'm not the smartest guy in this room. I'm not even the smartest guy in this video, probably. But I'm just telling you, I think you've got what's necessary. I hope that you'll utilize it uh, to the most important end of answering the most important questions of life.
3: Doesn't fear, curiosity, testing or doubt, which inoculate us against charlatans and scams. But if your beliefs stand up to scrutiny, then why is doubting Thomas vilified as the bad guy for utilizing the scientific method, while the rest Best of the disciples are congratulated for following like blind sheep. So,
0: in most, uh, doubting Thomas was in a unique position. First of all, I, I don't know. Here's the thing. I might have said the same thing Thomas did. The, the point is, what did God do? Did God uh, tell him, no, I'm not going to give you any more evidence? No, he showed him the hole in his side and his nail-scarred hands, right? God is happy to provide that evidence to Thomas. The thing is, Thomas was in a unique position. Thomas had actually already seen the miracles of Jesus and still would not believe. And I've actually encountered skeptics like that. I've pointed out to Matt Dillahunty on stage in Waco at Baylor University that, look, man, uh, you have said that if... Um, Mike Lycona's head was cut off right in front of you or he told Mike, like, oh, this is in their debate. And uh, it was somehow magically reattached an hour later, and he began talking about having had a conversation with a dead relative that you knew about a conversation about something that only you and that relative would know. You still wouldn't believe that something supernatural had necessarily happened. You said that if suddenly a meteor crashed into the moon and it was written in Hebrew and Greek, multiple languages, God exists, you still wouldn't think that anything supernatural was would happen. You told Matt Slick in 2015 that if it were the case that uh, a man parted an ocean in Jesus' name right in front of you, you still wouldn't believe that anything supernatural would happen. Uh, Yeah, that kind of level of skepticism we can be safely critical of because that is an unrealistic level of skepticism. I'm sorry. And in Thomas's case, he had seen the miracles. He had every, he had all the evidence he should have had and still doubted. Nevertheless, we serve such a wonderful God that when that happened, what does Jesus do? He shows him the nail-scarred hands. He shows him the hole in his side. But then, yeah, he says, blessed will be those that believe without seeing. So this is uh, just a misunderstanding, I think, of what was actually going on in that story. Sections of Christian theology, there's typically one of two afterlifes
2: you'll get into when you die. There might be different subsects of this, but generally speaking, there are these main two ones, heaven or hell. So my question would be, why would you want either of those? Let me lay it out. You can either go to heaven and have no free will, or you can go to hell and burn forever. Take your pick. If you go to heaven, everything's happy at all times, which means you're not allowed to feel sadness. You'll be worshiping God until the end of days, and there's going to be no end of days, so it's going to keep going forever and ever, which means you effectively have no will of your own. You are forced to worship this deity until who knows when. Now, if you go to hell, Then you're going to be burning forever, but at least you have your free will. In neither of these are you given a choice or a chance to be anything but what you will be shaped and molded into. In both of these you will effectively be a slave, whether you have your free will and you're burning and tortured, or you have no free will and thus are effectively stuck in unending servitude. I don't believe either of these places exist, and I have no reason to believe either of these places exist. But it seems that a lot of Christian theists want these places to exist. And my question would have to be, why? Both of them sound absolutely abysmal.
0: Okay, so the question, first of all, I want to get what happened there at the end there. There was a little bit of a, uh, an issue there at the end uh, that Christian theists seem to want these things to exist. Well, y- yeah, I think it'd be pretty nice if heaven exists. But do I want hell to exist? No, I prefer that hell didn't exist. The question is... Uh, this whole thing of why would you want to believe something like that? Um, there are probably some people that believe it because they want it to be true. That's not me. I'll be happy that heaven exists. But the reality is we don't believe these things because we want them to be true. We believe them because we think they're actually the truth about the nature of reality. It's like I could say the same thing back to you. Do you believe that cancer exists in the world? Oh, oh you do. Well, why would you want to believe in something like cancer? Oh, you don't want there to be cancer. You believe it because it's the truth about the nature of reality. Right. That's why we believe in heaven and hell. Now, that may sound wild to you because you have an anti-supernaturalist framework. I'm not saying Cyrus the Skeptic does. I don't know anything about him. I've never made a response video to him so far as I know. Um, I'm just saying, in general, when people bring that criticism, it always baffles me. It's like, uh, you're responding to a kind of Christian that you're not encountering in- among Christian apologists. Uh, do we want having to be real? Yeah, but the p- thing is, we don't believe these things because we'd like them to be true. We believe them because we think they are true. Okay, now... Um, as for what came before that, what did he say? Oh, heaven and hell. So he has this I- idea, I think, that when you get to heaven, you're not going to have any free will. And I understand there are a lot of Calvinist Christians who don't think that we have free will right now and don't think that we're going to have free will in heaven. And there are actually some non-Calvinist, that's non-determinist Christians, who do think that when we get to heaven, we'll be have something like compatibilism, which is determinism. I'm not either one of those. I think that when we get to heaven, we're still going to have free will. You might say, but how is that possible if there's going to be no sin? Well, I think it's actually not that difficult to get there. Uh, Currently, I think it's hypothetical. Now, people are going to call me what's known as a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian for for this, what I'm about to say. But if they do, it's just because they don't understand what I'm saying. Uh, I think that is, is it hypothetically possible for an individual person to not commit any particular sin? Yeah, it is. It is. With any particular sin, I didn't have to commit it. Otherwise, you're a determinist Christian, right? I think that in any particular situation of sin, you don't have to commit that sin. So it's theoretically possible that I could do that in each circumstance and never sin. Right. Theoretically, hypothetically, that is philosophically possible, but it never happens. I've never met anybody like that. And the Bible tells me in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has, and I believe everyone will, except for Jesus, right? But it's theoretically possible. It just... Never never ends up happening in reality. I think the reverse is gonna be true in heaven. After our glorification, I think that it will be theoretically, hypothetically, philosophically possible that someone could sin, uh, but just won't ever be the case that anyone does. Well, why wouldn't it be the case that anyone ever does? Uh, well, because we've experienced this life and we've seen what sin can do, and there will be no doubts. There will be no questioning about the benefit of living the life that God wants us to live in heaven, and our physical bodies, including our brains, will be resurrected and glorified. And so, after all of that, it will just be absurd to sin. For the and I'll give you an analogy for this. So, I, both of my daughters, when they were very small, uh, you know, barely able to get out of the sandbox. Both of them, I watched them try to eat sand. Now, I didn't just wash there and let it happen. I tried to stop them, but I saw them both put sand in their mouth, okay? Um, now, that's absurd, right? We know that's absurd, but a child doesn't know that. They put sand in their mouth, spit it out. It's gross, right? Um, is it theoretically, philosophically, hypothetically possible that when my daughters are in their 30s that they will still eat sand? Well, it's not impossible. There's nothing that would prevent them from reaching down and picking up sand and putting it to their lips, They could totally do it, but do you think I'm going to spend too many sleepless nights worried that my daughter is going to be across town gobbling down buckets of sand? Of course not. It'll never happen. Is it possible? It's possible. But will it ever happen? No. Um, And the idea is absurd. In the same way, when we go to heaven, sinning will be like eating sand. It will be absurd. The very idea is absurd. Why? Because we know what that does. When we get to heaven, we'll understand it much more clearly than we do now. So it's the inverse of the way it is right now with sin. That allows for free will. And then you might say, well, yeah, but aren't you always going to have to be bound to do the most optimum, the best possible thing? Uh, not necessarily. There are many uh, things that are all all good. You know, if, should I bring my wife flowers tonight or chocolates? Um, she probably values one of those incrementally more on some microscopic level, but both are good choices, right? They're not bad choices. We'll have multiple good choices when we get to heaven. I just don't see this as a problem. And as far as hell, he's taking one very, uh, very rigid view of the most fundamentalist understanding of the nature of hell, and there's just so much more to the discussion than that. I would encourage him to check out the videos on hell that we've done on this channel. So there you go. Let's keep trucking. Both of us believed in God. It
2: meant everything to us. It colored how we saw the world. It gave us meaning and it gave us strength. Then one day, we couldn't. We had questions, we had doubts, and they couldn't be answered. We searched, we wanted to, and we tried. We struggled to make ourselves believe again, but we couldn't pretend we did without knowing that it was a lie. So here's our question. Can a person simply choose to believe in something that they are not convinced of? If not, and God created our brains to require a certain level of evidence in order to be convinced, why has he chosen to not provide that level of evidence for us? Even though we both wanted to believe.
0: Okay. Um, First of all, my friend Shannon Q here. I love the the animations that Paul Ogia does, but you're looking a bit like Sarah Connor from Terminator 2. Just saying. Uh, (laughs) Just pointing out what I see here. Um, Anyway, uh, so can you just choose to believe something? I think this is a big misnomer in the atheist community. Yeah, you can. Not directly. Actually, I kind of think you can directly. Uh, this gets into a little bit of a philosophical discussion. There is what is called direct uh, doxastic voluntarism and indirect doxastic voluntarism. Direct doxastic voluntarism would be if you just immediately decided to believe something um, like, I'm going to decide right now that there's a pink elephant in the room with me. Could I just choose to believe that? Actually, yes, I could choose to believe that. I could decide to believe that there's a pink elephant in the room with me. The problem is that I can't deliver on that. I can't. I can't actually bring it about that I do convince myself of that. So that's direct uh, doxastic voluntarism. I think that it's actually true that you can decide to do it. You just can't deliver to yourself on it. That may seem like a trivial point to you, but it actually comes up a lot in the free will determinist debate. We're not going to get into that now. Indirect doxastic voluntarism is instead when you uh, you you put yourself in a position where the belief arises, and you can choose whether or not you're going to put yourself in the position where the belief will arise naturally. Um, so, for example... Um, uh, my friend Tim Stratton gives a great example of this uh, it, with a different issue uh, besides choosing beliefs, but instead experiencing love or the feelings of love toward another person. So uh, let's say that you, uh, that, that, that a man marries a woman who has a child already from a previous marriage or something like that. He may not be able to decide to just uh, m- or make himself, he could decide to do it, <laughs> direct doxastic, but he couldn't actually force himself to love this kid immediately, right? Um, but you know what he could do? He could put himself in situations where he ex- has experiences with the kid. He gets to know the kid over a period of time and puts himself in situations where that, those feelings of love um, and connectedness, uh, fatherly sort of thing, develops naturally. So can he choose to do that or not? Yes, he can, through indirect doxastic voluntarism choose whether or not he's going to experience those, uh, that phenomenon of love. In the same way with your beliefs, you can choose your beliefs, and you do that through indirect doxastic voluntarism. You may not be able to just say, I believe in God all of a sudden, or I believe Christianity is true, but you can choose to put yourself in a position where you're studying the right kind of things, that those beliefs arise naturally. Now, you might say, but they just said on the screen that they tried and tried to believe these things, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it. Now I don't know their background, so I can't really speculate too much. I know that Paul Ogie has started out doing a lot. I mean, on his Twitter uh, feed, he has pinned right at the top that it was people like Ken Ham and Kent Hovind. I don't know if he mentions Hovind, but people like that, young Earth creationists, that that uh, that he credits with him leaving the faith, right? Okay, or at least they helped. I, I don't think that those are the best voices. Now, now I, I'm not trying to slag them off, um, but I'm just saying that I think that there's much better voices out there. And now, Paul Ogier is aware of those voices, but he became aware of those voices so far as I can tell, or at least he really started developing sophisticated answers to them um, at some point along that journey. It was initially this young earth creationist type stuff, at least that's what I'm picking up. Maybe I'm wrong. However, here's the thing. If that's where you went for your answers, I think that you need to redo the indirect doxastic volunteerism. I think you need to take the best voices Forget that you have a YouTube channel. Uh, forget, forget any of that, and and really just say, all right, I'm going to put myself in a position of opening myself up to this as much as I can. And I think that Paul Ogier would tell me that he's done this. But in addition to that, I would also put myself in a community of faith. I would surround myself with believers who were aware of these things, believers that were really committed, and um, and, and not not just your you know your your uh, you know surface level stuff. I would get involved. I would really put myself in a community of faith. And I believe that you would have these things develop over time. Now, a criticism that people would bring to this is they'd say, well, isn't that the cherry picking, cherry picking of evidence? It's confirmation bias. Um, it, it would be if that was all you had ever studied. But you've studied the other stuff too, all right? What I'm saying now is what you did with the other stuff, where you opened yourself up to it and said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really accept that this might be true. I'm saying do that again with Christianity because here's the thing. I do believe that your brains are such that you can figure this out. I do believe that your brains are such that you can bring about belief if you do it through this indirect doxastic voluntarism. That's the answer to that. Let's keep trucking.
2: Often, creationists will characterize the Big Bang as something magically created from nothing. But then you have creationists who literally believe a supernatural being created the entire universe, literally something magically from nothing. My question to you is, is why is the first one irrational, but the second one logical?
0: Great question, Godless Engineers. So the reason that that's uh, an issue is not so much the issue of from nothing and by nothing or from nothing and for nothing and from nothing, it's by nothing. So it's the cause that uh, sophisticated Christian thinkers about this are really concerned with. It's not so much just that uh, you be- you ha- would be believing in a universe from nothing and, uh, and created out of nothing. It's that there's no cause for it. You, you need a first cause. So uh, to run through it very simply, and I have multiple videos on this, but if, the un- if when we talk about the physical universe, we're talking about a universe of space, time, and matter, then uh, if we're talking about the cause of that must be, it can't be something in those, co- in those categories because things can't cause themselves to come into existence. So it has to be a spaceless, timeless, and non-material Cause, all right. We would go further and say that it has to be sufficiently powerful to bring about the universe. Because if it's not sufficiently powerful to serve as the cause, well, then it can't be the cause. And we would say that it has to be a mind because whatever it is, there was no prior determinism to bring about the effect from a timeless, spaceless state. It would have to uh, have it would have to have libertarian freedom. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom? Personal agents do. It would also have to be a personal agent because it would require state event causation. I go into all that in other videos. So the principal issue is not, that it's coming from nothing. That's a big problem, I think, for uh, atheism because it's coming from nothing and by nothing. But if you have the cause, the cause is the real problem there, at least as far as I'm concerned. So that's how I'd answer that question. Let's keep trucking.
1: We atheists get asked all the time what the basis of our morality is. It's as if because we don't have some holy book or we don't worship a god, we have no true way of having a moral compass call me crazy but I don't think you have to have the promise of heaven to see that doing good is just good. Well the basis for my morality is simple. I believe that doing the most good and the least harm Benefits not only me, but those around me.
0: We would ask, why is that a good thing?
1: I believe that things like kindness and love and laughter benefit not only me, but those around me. However, I also believe that...
0: Uh, Why why is that a good thing? I I mean, I appreciate the personal uh, affirmations of faith and belief here, but I'm not understanding where's the grounding for this.
1: Things like... Judgment, condemnation, and a willful ignorance to follow something that has no basis set in reality or backed up by evidence.
0: Um, I've been talking about the evidence throughout this video, and I have a channel devoted to the evidence, and I have multiple debates where I lay out the evidence. So, uh, again, that which can be asserted without evidence can be uh, rejected without evidence or dismissed without evidence. So unless in this, and I get it, he's giving a little short uh, response here, a question, but um, that's just an assertion.
1: It's ultimately harmful, and not only to me, but to those around me.
0: And why is that a bad thing? I mean, you guys get. I think it's a bad thing to do harmful things to other people, too. My question is, what's your basis for that? Because I have an ontological basis for morality. Um, all I ever hear atheists point to is their moral epistemology um, and how they think that uh, various things revealed to them why why certain things should be considered right and wrong, uh, but not how it is that they're really right or wrong. There's no ontological foundation for that. So we would need to get some of that. And I don't think we're going to get it in this video. I really don't think we're going to get it anywhere.
1: So for my question, I'd like to turn the tables. Let's do it. What's the basis for your morality? Is it the Bible? Is it really the Bible? That same Bible that doesn't condemn slavery or rape? Instead it says things like, if your daughter is raped, she should marry her attacker. Or... If you're a slave owner and you find yourself in the situation where your slave is unruly you are within your right to beat him within an inch of his life so many scriptures 66 books filled with thousands of pages hundreds of thousands of words but not one of which says that rape or slavery is morally wrong
0: but if the man encounters the engaged woman in the open country and he seizes and rapes her only the man who raped her must die do nothing to the young woman because she is not guilty of an offense deserving death. This case is just like the one in which a man attacks his neighbor and murders him. The Bible nowhere says that rape is wrong. Now, this is actually the same location. I don't know if, if he is aware of this to point to it, but this is actually the same location where we get the oft-repeated message that a woman has to marry her rapist. Um, well, this, th- this is a series of three scenarios that are described in a law code in Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 through 29. The first of which is in the city verses 23 and 24 in the city and the woman doesn't cry out this is not considered to be rape. Now this may sound bad uh, to our 21st century western ears, but the idea was they didn't have windows with glass and all that they just had a, a hole in the wall with a curtain over it or a piece of wood and the idea is that if a woman cried out she would be heard and so someone could come to her aid. So if she doesn't cry out, it's assumed that this was consensual. Now you can disagree with that, but it's not, it's not considered, uh, at least it's not saying that this woman should be raped or rape is fine or anything like that. In verses 25 to 27, it's in a field and the man forces her and no one could hear. And so this is considered rape. The woman is given the benefit of the doubt because if she had cried out, well, then there wouldn't have been anyone there to hear it anyway. So uh, she's given the benefit of the doubt in that case. In verses 28 and 29, it's in a field and he catches her. It's actually a different word that's used here. Uh, as different Hebrew word, Paul Copan notices this contextual difference as well as similarities to the seduction passages of Exodus 22, 16 through 17. You should go read those. And that it says they are discovered rather than he is discovered. In other words, the couple in the act has been discovered and concludes that this is talking about a consensual interaction, though there may have been some initial pressure from the man. Now, the idea is in each of these cases, the man is guilty. And the question is, is the woman guilty or not? the woman is given the benefit of the doubt where it can be done. So this idea that rape is permitted in the Bible is absurd. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 10 through 14 is one that's often brought up. When you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and listen to this, mourn her father and mother for a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband. She shall be your wife. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. Now, you may not like how the Bible handles these things, but it was certainly not rape. And it was actually a way to provide for uh, and protect the woman's future. If a battle has occurred and the, the means by which this woman would have been able to survive, uh, whether you like it or not, men who would protect her and work the field and all these kind of things. If that was all gone, this woman is conceivably going to need someone to protect her. Now, the man is not allowed to just take her and in a moment of lust, you know, do whatever he wants with her. He has to give her a full month to mourn her father and mother. And then he has to actually take her as a full wife, so that would in, involve uh, benefits in, in Israel and all those sorts of things. Other examples of rape in the Bible are just telling you the story of what happened. They're not endorsing what happened. Um, I, could, I have actually two whole videos on slavery and one where I go into much greater detail about this issue of rape. So I, I, just, I just want to bring all of that out because what's going on here is um, an, a lack of awareness about what actually is in the Bible and a misunderstanding of what he is aware of that's in the Bible. And I just wanted to clarify all of that for you.
1: So what's the basis for your morality again?
0: Okay, now this is an interesting question. The basis for my morality is it's written on my heart. It's a, it's a code that every single human being has. You have it, I have it, everyone on planet Earth has it. I actually don't think a lot of people really have too much trouble understanding what's right and wrong. The question is, are you gonna do what's right and not do what's wrong? I think we have that moral code written on our hearts. Are there weird situations where we have a little bit of confusion? Of course we do. Uh, that's just because we live in a complex world. Um, if you're asking for it, my basis is, uh, I have it written on my heart, and also the ontological foundation for it is in the nature of God himself. It's neither that he appeals to some goodness that's over and above him, and it's neither that whatever he commands just becomes good because God's commanding it. Um, what he commands flows from his nature. Uh, neither horn of the euthyphro dilemma in play there. So, uh, that's where I get my foundation, uh, with the Bible. Uh, there are a lot of specifics that I get from the Bible. I just think you misunderstand a lot of what's in the Bible. All right, so there you go. That's the end of that video uh, from The Non-Sequitur Show, and I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Uh, it looks like it took me about an hour and six minutes to get through. I know that's a long video. I'm sorry. I tried to answer as quickly as I could. I didn't go through all the long, drawn-out uh, discussions that I usually did, and if that meant that I sounded a little bit more blunt or a little bit too straightforward, I apologize for that greatly. That is not my intent. So. Um, if you have further questions about Christianity, check out our channel at Trinity Radio. Uh, it's at YouTube.com slash Braxton Hunter if you found this somewhere else and if you're listening by audio. And uh, if you'd like to support what we're doing here and responding to YouTube Atheists, then you can do that by clicking in the top right-hand corner of this screen or going to Patreon.com slash We would really, really appreciate it. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.